Richard and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. What a pleasure it is to welcome you. I'm always surprised when this building's full. BCP's got some amazing churches. Thanks for coming. It's great. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, I'm going to be preaching this morning on the, uh, the biblical office of deacon in the church. If you're, if you're uh, new to church, maybe you've heard that word bandied around, uh, but you have no idea what it means. I'm, I'm really hoping that today I'll be able to explain what a deacon is, how we are all called to deacon, how important that is, and how we do this in imitation of Jesus, who is the ultimate deacon. The uh, biblical conviction that we hold here at Gateway as we examine the New Testament is that um, churches like us are in some ways like human bodies. That's a metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses when he writes about churches. He says that when we gather together, as we, as we collaborate here in churches like Gateway, and as we walk through life and we practice our faith together as a gospel community, that we should in some way mirror and reflect how a human body works. There are hands that do a particular task, and there are eyes that do another task, and there are stomachs and livers that do what only stomachs and livers can do, and there are feet that do what feet do. And he makes this compelling argument that a foot can't say to an ear, well, I don't need you, that if a body is to work as a body should, then we need all of these diverse and complementary parts. And that's not rocket science to understand. If you've ever even looked at another person, you'll know that. Bodies are made up of lots of different collaborating parts. And so too, Paul says, here in the church. So if we sat here today as a, I don't know, a room full of ears that take in information but no heads to lead us to think about things deeply or, uh, or stomachs to digest what we're discussing and help us to apply it, or, or hands and feet to do the work of our faith, then just like an actual, actual body would be a bit of a monstrosity and, uh, and an unhealthy one at that. So God has placed in the church all these different complementary people and complementary backgrounds and complementary gifts, and he calls us to collaborate as a healthy body. That's my kind of uh, invitation to you this morning. So some of us in this room are more gifted as thinkers and some as speakers and some as prayers and some as caring for people and so on. And as we work together and as we bring those different diverse gifts to the table, the body of the church is strengthened and our witness to the world is made clear and coherent and compelling. And Really importantly, we're to see that no one part of the body is more important than another. Eyes need ears and hands need feet in order for the body to work. But importantly, and we must note this, we are different. And this difference, if we live it out biblically, is not something to despise, but it's actually something to bring us together for all the reasons I've already talked about, as an effective witness inside the church and to a watching world to prove that when Jesus said 2,000 years ago that he would build his church on the likes of you and I, ordinary people, that he wasn't messing around. He really did mean that. He meant that the church would be the vehicle by which he would be made known in the world with all these sorts of different people from all around the world. And... It's also meant to represent that the command that he gave to love one another is also not just there for fun, 
but as a means of both representing the God of love and also as a practical instruction to glue us together, these diverse and different parts in unity as we follow after God together. You, you really don't get this kind of dynamic in any other institution in the world. The church is a unique body, so diverse. I probably have, I don't know, very little in common with a pastor my age in, say, Nepal. I just spent the last two days in a room with uh, senior advanced leaders, advanced being the family of church that we, belong, the, that we belong to, from all around the British Isles. And I can tell you, 30 more different people you will not find. But when we come together to worship Jesus, there is a solidarity of heart and voice and mind. And I, I would imagine even in this room, there is great diversity. There are people you may never naturally have chosen to spend time with. Different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different biographies, young, old. But what binds me to my counterpart in Nepal or to you know, any other part of the world is our shared love for Jesus. And the biblical instruction to glue ourselves together to each other in relationship through love and in missional purpose through the recognition that Jesus is building something here in the church, in his body, through our diverse but complementary parts and complementary unity. And that's why unity in the church is something that we should fight tooth and claw for. It really is. It's an important part of our agenda. And because we are so different, where difference and diversity in the world is often seen as and, and creates the cause for conflict, we need to, through our unity, tell the world a better story, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the head of the body, and that we, diverse people, have come together to operate as his body in the world through love for him and glued together by love for one another. What a story that is to tell our fractured world. I was listening to the news headlines this morning, thinking about this and thinking, man alive, Give me five minutes on the news headlines. Let me tell a story about what the people of God are like and meant to represent. That's why Jesus said that this, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, that you're my followers, that you love one another. It's pretty simple, really. Now, the reason I've given this kind of preamble for what I believe to be the, the nature of the church is to highlight that in the church there are many equal but different parts and that we all have a role to play in this. And the New Testament unpacks how our different gifts are to work together and to submit to one another. But as it does this, it highlights on one hand various gifts that are given to the church, gifts of administration and of care and of leadership and so on. And it also outlines two biblical offices or functions that are to be established in the church. It talks about, firstly, the office of elder. Uh, churches should be led by recognized men called elders. The biblical word for that is shepherd, who have a responsibility for the care of the sheep in their care. In, in this church, that's, that's me, and that's Nathaniel, and that's Gordon over there, and our role, no more or less important than anyone else's, but different, is to lead us by teaching the word and by praying for us 
and by protecting our unity, and to this we give our lives, and we would likely give up our lives if called to. I actually checked that sentence with Nathaniel and Gordon. We said, yeah, absolutely. We give our lives to this and we'd give up our lives for this church if we needed to. That's, that's our role in this family, this, this body. We're supposed to be the dads, if you like. This caring, serving, leading role is what we believe that dads are supposed to do in any family, and so too here in the family of God. The other office that the New Testament outlines is the office of deacon. Now, deacons, again, no more or less important than any other part of the body, but are distinct in ways that I'm going to outline this morning. And this is important for us for three reasons, I believe. Number one, if we understand well the role of deacon, we understand something profound about Jesus, who was the ultimate deacon. The second thing is that if we understand well the office of deacon, we'll also see that all of us are called to deacon in, 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 a sense, in, in the sense of the verb, which I'll explain in just a moment. And thirdly, if we understand well the office of deacon, in a minute, when I commend to you the seven people who we would like to become deacons in this church for the next year, you'll be able to look at them and go, ah, yes, I see those qualifications there. I'm very happy for that person to serve in the body to which I belong as a deacon because they fulfill the biblical instructions and outline uh, that they're supposed to. Now, the core purpose of the church, this is really important, when you boil it all down, is to proclaim the gospel. That's our number one priority. That's the last thing that we'll be doing if they ever close the doors on us. The gospel is the hope for mankind. The gospel, rightly understood, is salvation for the lost, it's healing for broken spirits, and it's practical help for the poor. And so the summary statement that I want to make is that deacons are the kind of super servants of the church, if you like. That's, that's really what the word kind of means. Their role, as is true for all of us at some level, is to make sure that people are cared for and served in such a way that it clears the runway for the core purpose of the church to proclaim the gospel. Think about a plane taking off from a runway. If the, if the plane is the, the gospel being preached, the deacons are the ones caring for the poor and serving in the church in ways that remove all the things from the runway that might hinder this plane from taking off, this plane that represents the clear proclamation of the gospel. Now, this is important because we are all called to do that. We are all called to play a part with our individual personalities and gifts in serving the church and serving our mission to the world and speaking into culture and serving those far from God and witnessing to human hearts in such a way that clears the way for the gospel to be proclaimed so that it lands in hearts and brings people to the clear knowledge of God and so a good question to ask yourself this morning is, how are you doing that in your own life? How are you deaconing the church for the success of the gospel? If you are a Christian, if you are part of this church, just like me, all of you, all of us together, we have a role to play. We have a seat at the table, an important one, to make sure that the gospel goes forth and is effective. Now, just to help us to understand this fully, I always say that if you, if you ever want to, stand anything in, want to understand anything in Scripture, any concept, any theological or ethical or relational or whatever, you've got to start by looking at what God is like. And as it pertains to deacons, we get the ultimate model in Jesus, 
who served the church by giving up his life for us, that the gospel might be preached in the world with coherence, since the death and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel. It is the means by which all people can now know freedom and salvation and healing and relationship with God. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you consider the way that Jesus served us is by dying for us. When you reread this passage in the more literal Greek that it was written in, it says, For the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give up his life as a ransom for many. That's a, a really helpful framework, I think, for thinking about the type of servant sacrifice that we're called to, all of us as followers of Christ, sacrificial and surrendered to him to the point of being willing to give up our lives. That's ultimately all, for all of us, how we're called to deacon, self-sacrificial service for the sake of the gospel, which is why those in the office of deacon are to be seen and honored as the super servants in the church, in imitation of Jesus, the ultimate super servant. So, I'd like to propose the names of the people that we want to appoint as deacons for the next 12 months. We appoint deacons for 12 months at a time for reasons that hopefully will become a bit more apparent as I talk about this. And as I mention these names, I'm going to ask these seven people to stand, although two of them, I understand, are away today. Um, could, you, could you guys stand and just remain standing for a second? And uh, we, we don't do voting or anything like that in this church. We kind of, what we're looking for is the, the amen, the yes of God from amongst us. So... Um, this week, uh, I, what we'd love to do is, as I propose these, these names to you, myself and Nathaniel and Gordon, we'd just love to hear from you, if that's okay. And, uh, and, and the, the idea is we propose them to you this morning, and then in a couple of weeks' time, we actually officially bring them in on a Sunday morning into the office of Deacon. So can the following seven people please stand? So can we have Chris Main with a round of applause? <laughs> Graham and Claire Rabjohns. Paul and Becky Horsley are away, but I would have invited them to stand today. And Liam and Prisca Flintz. If you guys can just stay standing. Part of the nature and the character of Deacon and what these guys uh, would be like as individuals, right now they're probably all dying inside because they all hate the limelight but they love to serve. So if you guys can just uh, kind of batter down your, your kind of instinct to sit down for a second. Um, what, I, what I want to make, uh, the case I want to make is that um, these guys amongst us exemplify what it should mean to serve sacrificially in the church and help us all to run in our different lanes, using ours and their unique gift to do that. And through their endeavors to help to organize us and to care for people in such a way that makes it easy for the gospel to be preached and heard and received. Okay, guys, you can take your seats for a second. I might get you up later on if that's okay. Now, to further explain this, I'm going to take some time to unpack a passage in Act 6, uh, which is where we kind of find the, the biblical model for how a deacon was to serve the church. And as I've already labored a number of times, this should really also be a provocation to everybody else in the room as well, myself included, for how we should serve God's purposes here at Gateway. This is Act 6, first seven verses, verse 1-7. It says, 
This is the very early days of the church. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic, the Greek Jews among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, what I want to do is just track through the flow of thought here so that we can see what's happening and understand how the implementation of these deacons serves the church and helps us to achieve our core mission of the gospel being preached. So in the first verse, it says, in those days, as the church grew, complaints arose. Okay, fine. Notice how, as the church focuses on its core mission of preaching the gospel, making disciples, a problem arose, which had to do in this particular situation with the inequitable food distribution for a particular group of widows. These were Greek-speaking widows who were Jewish, but had probably lived their lives outside of Jerusalem, probably as a result of being persecuted out of their hometown. And uh, at the end of their lives, they had returned to Jerusalem to see out their days. And so even though they were Jews, they, and they belonged to that community, they were probably culturally quite different. And they had returned to Jerusalem to see out their days and to be cared for by the church community there. And so as the community grows, this not only causes an immediate practical need in the church, the equitable care for these widows, but it also threatened its unity because it started to expose these sensitive relational fault lines in the church. And so in verse 2, the 12, the kind of the guys who are leading the church at the time, they gather the church as we have here today and we've made clear the need. The leaders of the church recognize the threat to the ministry of the word, to the core purpose of preaching the gospel. And this, this problem with the widows was, was creating a bit of a distraction. This, these practical needs were threatening to derail the preaching of the word. And uh, it's really important for me to note here, as I stand here and preach, that serving tables and feeding widows is no way less important or more important than, say, preaching. And that's why I've really labored the point about body life and about what it means that different people have different gifts to bring to the table. But it does mean that those different gifts mean we're called to run in different lanes as we serve God's purposes here as well. So these 12 leaders recognize that this is really important, that the widows are cared for, but they also recognize that they're getting dragged all over the place uh, by the practical problems that growth in the church has caused. And so they think if we don't get this sorted, then we'll miss what we feel what God has distinctly called us to do to run in the lane that God has given us, to preach the word, to pray for the church, to protect its unity. And so they, they go to the church and they present this problem. And then in verse 3, they say to the church, well, guys, choose from amongst you godly, wise people, essentially deacons. Appoint them to take on this task that the widows can be cared for properly and the leaders can focus what they're supposed to be focused on and devote most of their time to prayer and teaching God's word. And in response to this, 
the church appoints seven men, seven people, says, to undertake this task to ensure three things. And this is really important for us. Those with practical needs are taken care of. In this case, it was widows. Secondly, that the unity of the church is maintained because they're addressing an inequality that exposed a relational fault line in the church, and that's dangerous, of course. And thirdly, that, as I've said, leaders run in the right lanes, that the important ministry of teaching isn't neglected. It even actually says that these seven godly men clear the way for the ministry of the word. And then look at the results in verse 7. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples increased. Appointing and deploying these deacons ensured the flourishing of the gospel and the growth of the church. Ta-da! It's good, isn't it? It's almost like the Bible has a plan. Now, in, in, in 1 Timothy 3, the Bible outlines the kind of character qualifications that a deacon should have. And frankly, again, as is true with, uh, if you look at the character qualifications for elders or deacons, these are remarkable by their unremarkableness. We should all exhibit these sorts of character attributes. It says, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, that means not getting drunk, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, then let them serve as deacons. In other words, just as with all Christians, deacons should be people of good character. And they should have the necessary skills and the track record of organizing mission and ministry within the church that ensures that the poor and the widow and the alienated and the outsider is cared for, and that the runway is therefore clear for the preaching of the gospel and the pastoral care of the church. Another way I've found it helpful to um, view the role of deacons, and again, this should be a provocation to all of us, really, is that Deacons are, are like shock absorbers. There's a good picture. I, I, like, I like a picture of a good shock absorber. <laughs> shock absorbers, if you don't know how cars work, absorb the, the bumps of pastoral ministry. Shock absorbers absor- uh, absorb the bumps of a journey in a car. And, uh, and that's something that we should all do as we encourage people in the gospel. They protect the unity of the church and they protect the preaching of the gospel by helping to take in some of the day-to-day relational and pastoral bumps in church life and to help people to be applying the gospel to their lives and fighting for our unity. So in that sense, their role is distinctly pastoral. You might say that the the kind of the equation for deacons is this, complaints and problems in, gospel and unity out. Sorry about that, guys. So during our All the Road Building project, with all the complexities and questions and doubts and challenges that came with all of that, those who were serving in the role of deacon at that point, were they did a great job at helping us as elders to help the church, to see the vision, uh, the gospel call in what we were doing, and instead of reverberating panic into the church, calmly absorbing it and absorbing uh, Uh, people's uh, complaints or frustration or anxiety about this and coaching people through it with the gospel. And by God's grace, as you know, we managed to get that job done. It's a great example of how deacons help to maintain the unity and the purpose of the church throughout something like that. It's a great example of what a church like ours can achieve when everyone plays a part in getting behind the mission and the vision of what God is doing here. That should be a, a serious provocation to us. It really should. 
That's what a deacon does. They are the leading servants in the church who clear the road for the gospel by removing roadblocks. They protect our unity by serving people with compassion, and they anticipate and respond to things that might prevent us from doing what we're supposed to as a church. Again, that's frankly what we're all supposed to do. Now, I want us to just raise our sights a little higher to give us faith for this and help us to see the glory of Jesus in it. The word deacon, the Greek word diakonia, essentially can be understood as a table waiter. That's what these guys in Act 6 were actually doing. They were table waiters for the widows. Uh, If you think about what a table waiter is when you go to a restaurant, in a sense, it's a person who's carrying out an instruction on behalf of a master. I know those are not popular terms, but in this kind of analogy, you're the master, the table waiter takes your instruction to the kitchen, and then something good should happen. And carrying out the instruction of the master is what Jesus came to do. Once again, it says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his, rans- his life as a ransom for many. Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus left the comfort of heaven to come down to us as a baby, he was deaconing us. When he walked the dusty roads of first century Palestine and Lebanon, proclaiming the kingdom, setting people free, healing the lame, bringing life and wholeness to the poor and the outsider and the widow and inviting all people to come into his family. He was deaconing us when he stood before Pilate and took on his accusations, when he heard the insults of the Pharisees, when he was beaten and whipped by the Roman centurions. He was deaconing us when he went to the cross as he hung there, his body broken, crowds mocking him, Roman soldiers ripping up his clothes and gambling for them and showing them out. He was deaconing us as he breathed his final breath and gave up his life. He was deaconing us because the greatest act of super service in human history had been achieved as Jesus paid the price for our sins at the cross, removed them from us, and opened the way to the Father for all people taking us from death into life, setting us free from the captivity of our sin, he was demonstrating and embodying what he said in Mark 10, I never came to be served like an emperor. That was never my intention. I came to you as a humble servant, as a humble king, to serve and to deacon you. Such was and is my great love for you. Can you even imagine a greater act of self-sacrificial service, that whilst we were still sinners, covered in the muck and the stain of our opposition to God, covered not in glory, sorry, but yeah, not, not in glory, but in sin, that he demonstrated his own love for us by going to the cross and deaconing us, by dying for us. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be like Jesus, we need to take on not the cloak of glory and self-applause. That's not the way of Christ. We need to take on the mantle of self-sacrifice towards God and man in perfect representation of the suffering servant, Jesus, the ultimate deacon, who would say to us, that's what it says in Mark 9, 35, anyone who wants to be first, in other words, if anyone would be revered by God, he must be the very last and the deacon of all. We owe everything we are to Jesus. 
the super servant of the church, the deacon who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for us. And he calls us, whoever you are, however far you are from God this morning, into new life with him and to imitate him by loving God and loving man and sacrificially, self-sacrificially serving, deaconing all, deaconing the world. That's the mandate of the church. All of us are called to deacon. It's just that the model is Jesus, the ultimate deacon there, the head of this body. That means that the rest of us in this room are just body, parts of Christ's body called to cooperate and work with other parts of Christ's body. We're called to deacon Christ, to deacon one another, and to deacon the gospel, to clear the runway. We're called to work together. We're called to organize ourselves for our core purpose, gospel proclamation. Therefore, all of us must be deacons in the body in these ways. We, we serve this body like you serve any kind of body. You grow it healthily by feeding it good stuff. We encourage one another. We love, we bless, we pray, we give financially and of our time. We console the parts that are in pain and we rejoice with the parts that are in celebration since it's through the healthy church that the gospel of Christ goes out into the world. We protect this body. We protect one another by cheerleading each other on in the gospel and warning each other when we see someone slipping. We gently correct one another. We protect our unity by not gossiping or storing up malice, but by believing the best in one another. That's a challenge. We shock absorb. We don't shock radiate all the things that Jesus came to do. Unity is a, is a core theme of the gospel. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in perfect unity, and he displays his glory through the unity of the church. The importance of unity in the church cannot be overstated. That's, that's on us. That's our responsibility. The problem in Acts 6 arose due to a lack of practical support, which led to an injustice issue, which threatened their unity and would have completely, in those fragile early days, undermined the gospel call on the church and what the church is meant to do. And these super servants come in, and they're selected to restore unity and to serve the poor and to protect the gospel. That's us. Church unity is our goal since church unity points to God's unity and to the glory of his son Jesus, whose gospel message is the story above every other story. Every other story is a subplot of that story. And it's in the gospel, therefore, that we find our story, the story of God come to be with us and to bring us into a relationship with him. That's the story that you and I are invited into. With all that in mind, let's, let's just talk once again very quickly about our proposed deacons. Graham and Claire Rabjohns. These, these guys really do lead us in pastoral care. They, they actively look for ways to remove things from the elders. Just, just keep your eye on them. Watch them at the church weekend away as an example of that. In fact, last week, they came into the office and said to me and John, you guys aren't doing the church weekend away. We're doing the church weekend away. 
It's brilliant. Just so helpful. And they actively look for ways to shock absorb the gospel by being in the lives of the most vulnerable people. They travel all over the place caring for the most vulnerable in our church. They fill their homes with the most their home with the most vulnerable in our community. They're here on Wednesday nights serving families in our community at the table. They're here on Thursdays serving people at Gatehouse. For me, they, they really do exemplify what it means to be a deacon, so I commend them to you really highly. Paul and Becky are away today celebrating Paul's 60th birthday, but they lead our largest service ministry, Gatehouse. In that sense, they have the most at-six-like area of service. They coordinate and lead our efforts to literally serve widows and widowers and all sorts of people who come in off the streets, bringing people out of isolation, and they offer dignity and comfort and relationship to the older person, to the younger person, to the weak, to the vulnerable, to the poor. Again, I commend them to you ever so highly. These guys exemplify what it means to be a deacon. Chris Main. She, too, exemplifies service to the poor, but she also administrates our hospitality functions, and in many ways, this building, in a way that ensures that people are fed and that the gospel is preached. The last person out the door, most meetings, is Chris Main. She has her eye on the lost sheep. She practically houses them in her own house sometimes. She loves the vulnerable and the poor, and uh, in my 12 or 13 years here as an elder, she has been involved in pretty much every single initiative to serve the vulnerable in my time in the church alongside. She's just brilliant in that respect. Again, I commend her highly to you. And then Lehman Prisca Flint. I mean, look at that for a photo. (laughs) Everyone else just sends in a normal photo. These guys get, you know, it's Prisca. (sighs) Yeah. I mean... Deacons. You, are, you guys are deacons. <laughs> I love these guys. They, um, I've, got, I've said this before. These guys kind of, they kind of, I want to be careful how I communicate this. They kind of lead a church within our church. Of course, we are one church, and I've just spoken about unity, but they particularly serve our students in 20s. Students, of course, aren't necessarily poor in the material sense of the word, but they are a demographic that needs very specific help. I can see them laughing over there. You think you are poor, don't you? (laughs) They do need very specific help to be integrated into a community like ours and to be treated equitably and to be given a voice and to be cared for at a really precarious time of life. Some of them are from all over the world as well. We've got people here from Hong Kong and the USA and parts of Africa. We really need you as a church to deacon Liam and Prisca as they deacon our students and 20s. I really wish you could see up close and personal how these guys kind of mother hen our students. They, they deacon our students and 20s in a way that should make us so proud and so help us in that regard. If you're part of the church, just take some time this week to reflect on these people, to reflect on how they imitate Jesus, the great deacon. And please do be in touch with me or Nathaniel or Gordon about that. We'll aim to install these guys as deacons officially here in two weeks' time on a Sunday. But importantly, if you take nothing else away from this morning, reflect, and you may need to act as you consider Jesus, who came to you 
as a great act of service, who died for you as a great act of service, who out of his love for you serves you still as he comes alongside you. Emmanuel, our God who is with us, this morning seated at the right hand of the Father, commending you to him and praying for you. He loves you. He serves you. He's drawing you near and he is calling you again to be in relationship with him today. He is the suffering servant, the ultimate deacon, and we owe him everything. Let me invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to continue to sing, if that's okay, and give him worship and give him thanks for how he has so loved and served us. King Jesus, we, uh, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Jesus, thank you that um, on the cross where we see the perfect justice and the perfect mercy of God merging as you give up your life for us. We see something of the glory of God. We see and receive and know something of the freedom of God. We receive salvation and mercy and healing. Lord, I pray for each of us, we'd see that afresh this week. We'd receive afresh this week healing, salvation, wholeness, and healing from you. And Lord, I do pray that if there's any amongst us here who are yet to know you for the first time, you would so work amongst hearts this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit as to cause us to lift our eyes to you, to receive you afresh this morning. Be glorified. Amen.